Section Zero of the Empresses of Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. The Empresses of Rome by Joseph McCabe. Introduction. The story of Imperial Rome has been told frequently and impressively in our literature, and few chapters in the long chronicle of man's deeds and failures have a more dramatic quality. Seven centuries before our era opens, when the greater part of Europe is still hidden under virgin forests or repellent swamps, and the decaying civilizations of the East cast, as they die, their seed upon the soil of Greece, we see in the gray mist of the legendary period a meager people settling on one of the seven hills by the Tiber. As it grows, its enemies are driven back, and it spreads confidently over the neighboring hills and down the connecting valleys. It gradually extends its rule over other Italian peoples, bracing its arm and improving its art in the long struggle. It grows conscious of its larger power and sends its legions eastward over the Blue Sea to gather the wealth and culture of Egypt, Assyria, Persia, and Greece, and westward and northward over the White Alps, to sow the seed in Germany, Gaul, Britain, and Spain. A hundred years before the opening of the present era, the tiny settlement on the Palatine has become the mistress of the world. Its eagles cross the waters of the Danube and the Rhine and glitter in the sun of Asia and Africa. But with the wealth of the dying East, it has inherited the germs of a deadly malady. Rome, the heart of the giant frame, loses its vigor, the strong bronze limbs look pale and thin. The clear, cold brain is overcast with the fumes of wine and heated with the thrills of sense, and Rome passes, decrepit and dishonored, from the stage on which it has played so useful and fateful a part. The fresh aspect of this familiar story, which I propose to consider, is the study of the women who molded or marred the succeeding emperors in their failure to arrest, if not their guilt in accelerating, the progress of Rome's disease. Woman had her part in the making, as well as the unmaking, of Rome. In the earlier days, when her work was confined within the walls of the home, no consul ever guided the momentous fortune of Rome, no soldier ever bore its eagles to the bounds of the world, but some woman had taught his lips to frame the syllables of his national creed. However, long before the commencement of our era, the thought and the power of the Roman woman went out into the larger world of public life, and when the empire is founded, when the control of the state's mighty resources is entrusted to the hands of a single ruler, the wife of the monarch may share his power, and assuredly shares his interest for us. Even as mere women of Rome, as single figures and types rising to the luminous heights of the throne out of the dark and indistinguishable crowd, they deserve to be passed in review. Some such review we have, no doubt, in the two great works which spread the panorama of imperial Rome before the eyes of English readers. In the graceful and restrained chapters of Merivale, we find the earlier empresses delineated with no less charm than learning. In the more genial and voluptuous narrative of Gibbon, 
we may, at intervals, follow the fortunes and appreciate the character of the later empresses, but no matter how nice a skill in grouping the historian may have, his stage is too crowded either for us to pick out the single character with proper distinctness, or for him to appraise it with entire accuracy. The fleeting glimpses of the empresses which we catch, as the splendid panorama passes before us, must be blended in a fuller and steadier picture. The tramp and shock of armies, the wiles of statesmen, the social revolutions, which absorb the historian, must fall into the background, that the single figure may be seen in full contour. When this is done, it will be found that there are many judgments on the empresses, both in Maryvale and Gibbon, which the biographer will venture to question. For the study of the earlier empresses, the English reader will find much aid in Mr. Baring Gold's Tragedy of the Caesars, 1892. Here again, however, though the empresses are drawn with discriminating freshness and full knowledge, they are constantly merging in the great crowd of characters. The aim of the present work is to place them in the full foreground and to continue the survey far beyond the limits of Mr. Baron Gould's work. It differs also in this latter respect from Starr's brilliant Kaiserfrauen, which is, in fact, now almost unobtainable, and especially from V. Silvignani's recent work of unhappy title, L'Imperio e le Donne de Cesare, which merely includes slight and familiar sketches of four empresses in a general study of the period. The work differs in quite another way from the learned and entertaining book of the old French writer Rogas de Servias, of which an early English translation has recently been republished under the title The Roman Empresses, or The History of the Lives and Secret Intrigues of the Wives of the Twelve Caesars. An improper title, because the work is far from confined to the wives of the Caesars. The work is an industrious compilation of original references to the empresses, interwoven with considerable art, so as to construct harmonious pictures, and adorned with much charm and piquancy of phrase, if some hollowness of sentiment. But it is so intent upon entertaining us that it frequently sacrifices accuracy to that admirable aim. Cervantes has not invented any substantial episode, but he has encircled the facts with the most charming imaginative halos, and where the authorities differ, as they frequently do, he has not hesitated to grant his verdict to the writer who most picturesquely impeaches the virtue of one of his empresses. Rogas de Serves was a gentleman of Languedoc in the days of the Grand Monarch. His empresses and princesses reflect too faithfully the frail character of the ladies at the court of Louis XV. For him, the most reliable writer is the one who betrays least inclination to seek virtue in courtly ladies. It need hardly be said that the present writer is indebted to these authors, to the learned Tillemont, and to others who will be named in the course of the work, but this study is based on a careful examination of all the references to the empresses in the Latin and Greek authorities, with such further aid as is afforded by coins, statues, inscriptions, and the incidental research of commentators. We shall consider, as we proceed, the varying authority of these writers. 
We shall find in them defects which impose a heavy responsibility on the writer whose aim it is to restore those faded and delicate portraits of the empresses over which later artists have spread their sharper and more crudely colored figures. One may, however, say at once that it is not contemplated to urge any very revolutionary change in the current estimate of the character of most of them. If a few romantic adventures must be honestly discarded, we shall find Messalina still flaunting her vices in the palace, Agrippina still pursuing her more masculine ambition, Popia still representing the gaily decked puppet of that luxurious world, and Zenobia in glittering helmet still giving resonant commands to her troops. But it will be well before we introduce the first and one of the best and greatest of the empresses to glance at the development of Roman life which prepared the way for woman to so exalted a dignity. The condition of woman in early Rome has often been restored. We see the female infant, her fate trembling in the hand of man from the moment when her eyes open to the light, brought before the despotic father for the decision of her fate. With a glance at the little white frame, he will say whether she shall be cast out to be gathered by the merchants in human flesh or suffered to breed the next generation of citizens. We follow her through her guarded girlhood as she learns to spin and weave and see her passing from the tyranny of father to the tyranny of husband at an age when the modern girl has hardly begun to glance nervously at marriage as a remote and mystic experience. We then find her, not indeed so narrowly confined as her Greek sister, yet little more than the servant of her husband. Public feeling, it is true, mitigated the harsher features and forbade the graver consequences of this ancient tradition. For many centuries, divorce was unknown at Rome, yet woman's horizon was limited to her home, while her husband boasted of his share in controlling the commonwealth's increasing life. In the second century before Christ, we find symptoms of revolt. The wealthier women of Rome resent the curtailing of their finery by the opium law, now that the war is over, 195 B.C. Old-fashioned senators are dismayed to find them holding a public meeting, besetting all the approaches to the Senate, demanding their votes, and even invading the houses of the tribunes and coercing them to withdraw their opposition. The truth is that Rome has changed, and the women feel the pervading change. The passage of the victorious Roman through the cities of the East had corrupted the patriarchal virtues. Roman officers could not gaze unmoved on the surviving memorials of the culture of Athens or make festival in the drowsy chambers of Corinthian courtesans or the licentious groves of Daphne without altering their ideal of life. The splendor of Eastern wisdom and vice made pale the old standard of Roman virtus. The vast wealth extorted from the subdued provinces swelled the pride of patrician families until they disdainfully burst the narrow walls of their father's homes. The hills of Rome began to shine with marble mansions framed in shady and spacious gardens from which contemptuous patrician eyes looked down on the sordid and idle crowds in the valleys of the Serba and the Velabrum. Rome aspired to have its art 
and its letters. Roman women were not content to be secluded from the new culture and could not escape the stimulation of their new world. The Roman husband must be kept away from the accomplished courtesans of Greece and the voluptuous sirens of Asia by finding no lesser attractions in his wife. So the near horizon of woman's mind rolled outward. An inscription found at Lanuvium, where the empress Livia had a villa, shows that the little provincial town had a curia malurium, a woman's debating club. The walls of Pompeii, when the shroud of lava had been removed from its scorched face, bore election addresses signed by women. The world was mirrored in Rome, and few minds could retain their primitive simplicity as they contemplated that seductive picture. By the beginning of the first century of the older era, the women of Rome had ample opportunity for culture and for political influence. In the great conflicts of the time, their names are chronicled as the inspirers of many of the chief actors. They rise and fall with the cause of the Senate or the cause of the people. They unite culture with character, public interest with beauty and motherhood. At last the conflicting parties disappear one by one, and a young commander, Octavian, the great-nephew of Julius Caesar, gathers up the power they relinquish, a youth of delicate and singularly graceful features, of refined and thoughtful rather than assertive appearance. He hears that Caesar has made him heir to his wealth and his opportunities. He goes boldly to Rome, adroitly uses its forces to destroy those who had slain Caesar, forces Mark Antony to share the rule of the world with him and Lepidius, and then destroys Lepidius and Mark Antony. It is at this point, when he returns to Rome from his last victories, when the whole world wonders whether he will keep the power he has gathered or meekly place it in the hands of the Senate, that the story opens. End of section zero.